Section 27 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Homicide, Part 4. The Goss Utterzook Tragedy, Part 3. 2. The suits, which originally had been instituted in the Court of Common Pleas at Baltimore, were afterwards transferred, by the defendants, to the Circuit Court of the United States, where they were entered in September 1872. The action against the Mutual Life Company preceded the other insurance suits, as entered upon the calendar, and was reached for trial on May 27, 1873. This being regarded as a test case, the defense was conducted by counsel of the several insurance companies interested, all of whom were members of the Baltimore Bar. In his opening statement, Mr. Johns, counsel for the plaintiff, said, quote, This suit is between Mrs. Eliza W. Goss and the Mutual Life Insurance Company, but you will soon find, gentlemen of the jury, that though technically this case is between Eliza W. Goss and the Mutual Life Company, that this is in fact that single plaintiff contending with no less than a combination of four powerful insurance companies. We will adduce evidence which will enable you to perceive, while these companies solicited Mr. Goss to insure for the benefit of his wife, they acted one by one singly but when his body was cold and it was necessary for his wife, his widow, to ask that these insurance companies should keep their promises, that while they acted singly as they solicited his confidence, when it was necessary to meet the widow, they present the solid combination of companies, with all the powerful agencies behind them, which their monies, power, and wealth enable them to bring into this court." though the rule of defense in this case has not been communicated to us with that business-like frankness which should characterize especially such intercourse as that between a lady and companies who have sought the confidence of her husband in his lifetime, and though the object of the pleading is to give notice to the opposite party, they have communicated no specific and definite information. Yet we do know that the agents of these insurance companies have laid their corporate cheeks together through this community to defame the memory of the dead and intimidate this widow, and it is right and proper. Mr. Hinckley, I must interrupt the counsel in slandering the agents of the companies. Is that a proper opening statement, Your Honor? The Court. I do not think this is within the proper limits of the opening statement. Counsel charging the parties on the other side with a combination to defame. Mr. Johns. I will rest there, if your honor so rules. Now, gentlemen, with your permission, I will ask your attention, carefully, to the immediate facts which led this lady to make the claim against this company. We shall prove to you that in the summer preceding his death, Winfield Scott Goss was boarding upon the York Road, near Waverley, about a mile or two from the city of Baltimore, at the house of a Mr. Engel that near there there was a little tenement upon the estate of a j lowndes esq it was idle mr goss asked permission of him to rent and occupy that building 
that he might there carry on his trade as a mechanic and pursue the prosecution of certain inventions which were then occupying his attention that he was undertaking to develop the manufacture of a substitute for india rubber which he had been promised large rewards for if he should only be successful i shall prove to you that the basement room where he carried on his inventions was damp and uncomfortable that he asked his brother-in-law and a neighbor to accompany him there to help him remove some heavy articles from the basement to a more comfortable room upstairs we shall prove to you that he was in perfect health that day the second day of february eighteen seventy two we shall show to you that in the afternoon of that day his brother-in-law mr utterzook and a neighbor came up to be with him that as it grew dark it became necessary to light a lamp that w s goss the deceased took up a large glass lamp holding about a quart which at that time was almost empty that he attempted to light it that mr utterzook his brother-in-law and mr engel who were with him remonstrated with him that he had better not fill that old lamp that they suggested they would go down to mr engel's and obtain a lamp that these two persons left mr goss in that building going away for that purpose our proof will then be that when these two gentlemen were absent for the purpose of borrowing a lamp which they thought would be safe they were alarmed by the cry that the house was on fire and in a few moments as they looked out this building was in flames and of course they and all the rest of the neighbors collected at the spot that in a few moments afterwards not finding mr goss mr utterzook commenced to make inquiry for him and that then one of the parties there present took a large board and threw it against the side of the building so as to let the vision in from the flames and there upon the floor they saw the burning and almost charred remains that with an ice-hook they succeeded in bringing the remains out and that it came out with the blood pouring from it the limbs burned off but the breast which may have been concealed as we will show you by timbers or something which had fallen upon it almost preserved and a little of the hair still remaining we shall prove to you gentlemen that the body was then removed to a barn near by that it was cold weather that it was placed upon a sash in the barn and allowed to remain there during the night we shall prove to you that when they came there in the morning the blood which had flowed freely from the freshly burnt body had frozen in icicles around the sash that after the inquest the undertaker removed the body to the residence of the widow and we shall prove to you that instinct as well as intelligence came to the recognition of that body and that a woman's eye and a widow's breast knew it was the one upon which her own had rested and pulsated and that after giving it look enough to know from the broad frame and the thick neck and the form of the head that it was the remains of him she had almost worshipped she threw herself upon that body and had to be taken from it by violence we shall prove to you gentlemen that all the friends and relatives and neighbors were invited to that funeral and that he was buried as every honest man who had met with such a painful and accidental death would desire to be buried from the house of his own family we shall prove to you mark this little circumstance gentlemen that a day or two after the accident occurred the brother of the deceased visited the premises and felt around among the ashes for anything that might look like a bone 
and anything that looked like a bone he gathered up, and took and deposited them in one corner of the coffin, that he might do the last act that a brother's love dictated him to do, burying all that remained of his brother, and not leaving it to be scattered by the winds of heaven. We shall prove to you, by way of closer investigation of that body, that the brother found there a bunch of keys which Winfield Scott Goss carried with him, and that they fitted drawers in his home. We shall prove to you that he found his watch, a little tape line, or the metallic case of it, which he had been in the habit of carrying with him. Then, gentlemen, we shall prove to you that we committed these remains to the ground, and we supposed that we were burying him, giving him forever to the earth, but that such in the issue was not the case. In last January, 1873, as we shall prove to you, we received a communication from the council of these companies, filled with platitudes about the desire of these companies to pay this lady when they were satisfied, and demanding that they should be allowed to dig those remains from the ground and examine them. They accompanied these with a prerequisite that we should furnish them, first a written statement descriptive of Mr. Goss over the signature of the widow, and that then, in the presence of such medical gentlemen as they might select and we might select, the remains should be disinterred and examined. Strange demand to make upon us! Strange and startling demand as a matter of right! That gentlemen, we hesitated, as we shall prove to you, in yielding to this demand. We shall prove to you that we consented to that exhumation, imposing simply one essential prerequisite from which we would not yield, that we should have someone present at the time who would identify the remains as those we had buried there, because we, as businessmen, knew the uncertainty that hangs over the remains when the family loses sight of them, and we knew what a hubbub would be created through this city if we should consent to that examination and go there and find nothing, or a substitute for what we had placed there. We shall prove to you that we went there and met the medical gentlemen they had selected, and took with us those we had designated. It was a year after it had been interred, but when the coffin was opened, and those whom we had taken with us to identify it as the body which had been placed there, looked in the corner of the coffin, there were the few bones we had placed there. We shall prove to you, gentlemen, that then, in consequence of the inclemency of the weather, these medical gentlemen requested they might be permitted to remove that body for a more careful examination. We could hardly tell what more they could ask. It was removed. The only restriction we placed upon them was that they should do nothing to it, even in its then dilapidated and pitiful condition, that would further mutilate or disfigure it. We shall show you the report that was made by those medical gentlemen, which, though it could not identify the form in its then poor, emaciated condition, still reported what they did discover, and we shall show to you that there is not one single hair or tittle of difference that would commend itself to any intelligent and honest man, bent on an honest purpose, between the description that they give and each and every description which they had been given by Mrs. Goss herself. And gentlemen, we yielded to that request, and I must say here that often since I have wondered if I did right in yielding to it. 
but it seemed to me that though Mr. Goss was dead, his good name and his memory were still living, and that while a sentiment alone might prevent us from yielding to such a demand, his good name and memory required that we should yield. We knew that that grave which they proposed to disturb, if we refused, would be pointed out as men point out a felon's grave. We desired it should be the grave of our friend, where those who knew him and respected him in life might visit it, where the sunshine would fall upon it, and where his friends would speak lightly and kindly as they passed, and we yielded to the demand. Then, gentlemen, we shall prove to you that they promised us, if that examination was satisfactory to them, that that policy should be paid, and we will prove to you that, to our infinite and absolute surprise, I may say to our intense disgust, a letter came saying that they would not advise their clients, even then, to pay the policy. Therefore, gentlemen, the defense, as far as we know it, is that they deny the death of Winfield Scott Goss, which amounts to charging a base, savage, and merciless fraud upon this estimable family, which we are here to resist and to vindicate. Therefore, we shall supply this by another element of proof. We shall prove to you the high character of all these parties involved. We shall prove to you, all who knew Winfield Scott Goss, deceased, respected him, and though at times he might deal in conviviality to too great an extent with his companions, that he was a man then in the relations of business and social life, that all who knew him respected and loved him. We shall prove to you the high character of Mr. Utterzook, his brother-in-law, who was with him, prove it to you by those who were associated with him in the benevolent societies of the city, and who have known him as a man estimable and entitled to the confidence of all who are thrown with him. And we shall prove to you the high character of the brother, A.C. Goss. We shall prove to you that when his lips had been hushed into silence by death, and he was not here to tell the circumstances and the motives which had induced him to take out this insurance, that then all these companies interlaced and intertwined, and here we are to meet them. Alexander Campbell Goss, examined by plaintiff's counsel, testified as follows. In the month of February, 1872, I was boarding at number 41 North Calvert Street in the city of Baltimore. I last saw my brother alive about noon the second day of February, the same day of his death. We separated on the corner of St. Paul and Fayette Streets. He told me he was going home. At that time, he was engaged on the York Road, about two and a half miles from the city, near the town of Waverley. His business there was completing an invention of his own, a substitute for India rubber, also gilding picture frames. He had been there about four months. I have been out to these premises. It was a small tenement house with about seven rooms. The whole building was rented to him, but he did not use all the rooms. He was carrying on this investigation of his, to perfect his invention, in the cellar of the house. He also used one room immediately over the cellar. Question. What was that room used for? Answer. That was where he had his little steam apparatus, on top of the stove that conveyed heat down into the cellar. 
I never saw my brother alive again after departing with him on the corner of the streets. I saw his dead body the next day about twelve o'clock. It was at that time placed in an ordinary, medium-sized shoebox in the barn of Mr. Lowndes. I noticed there was blood dripping to the floor and a little blood on the floor. The blood was running down from the box in which the body lay. The body was handed over to the coroner the same day. It was then taken to his home, number 314 North Utah Street. It was subsequently placed in the public vault and afterwards buried in Baltimore Cemetery. While the body was in the vault, I went out where the accident occurred, and there commenced raking the debris, and found some little bones which I supposed to be his. I made a small bundle of them, and brought them to the city, and kept them until the next day, and while the body was in the vault, I removed the coffin lid and placed the small bundle of bones in the coffin. On the following Saturday, I again made an examination of the place where this fire occurred. I went there in company with a young friend. We did not search very diligently, nor very long. We did not find anything. The next week I went out again and searched there for some time, probably an hour or more. I first found his watch and chain, then I found the little keys that belonged to a drawer in his house, then the metal case of a tape line. I brought these articles in and showed them to Detective Mitchell. He went with me to see Mr. Lowndes, and we showed him the articles which I had found. The various articles produced and identified by witness. All these belonged to my brother. Question. Could you describe the appearance of your brother so far as his physique was concerned? Answer. Yes, sir. He was a very large man, weighing from about 175 to 180 pounds, very full in the chest, with a large neck and prominent forehead. Cross-examination by Mr. Wallace. Question. What induced you to go out and make the third search at the place where the fire occurred? Answer. My anxiety to get these things. I went out alone. Question. Was anybody there when you made the search? Answer. Yes, sir. A colored woman at Mr. Lowndes' house came up while I was at work. She remained there about ten minutes. I had been there about ten minutes before she came. Question. By what means do you identify this as your brother's watch? Answer. I have often seen his watch. This is the same size and the same kind of watch as his, and the chain I bought and presented to him myself. Question. What was the condition of the crystal of the watch when you found it? Answer. Around the edges it looked like it had been a little melted, not a great deal, but was broken and mashed flat down on the face of the watch. It was not melted, except around the edge of the circle. I could see through it and see the hands. Witness further testified, My brother was boarding at number 314 North Utah Street with David Arden. Mr. Arden is married to the mother of my brother's wife. When I parted with my brother on the corner of the streets, as stated, he said to me he was going home to dinner, then he would go out to his place where he would be at work until late. He did not think he would be back home before eight o'clock. I was a stranger in this city at that time had been here about two months, was not engaged in any business at all. I came to Baltimore to see the city and to travel. 
I also expected to be in business soon with my brother, in connection with his India rubber invention. I remember exactly the time I went down to my boarding house that evening. It was before supper. I was there at supper. After supper, I went up to my room at my boarding house, where I spent an hour and a half or two hours, then came down and met Mrs. Parsons, my landlady, and spent the remainder of the evening in the parlor, and at the usual time retired to bed. I did not leave the boarding house that evening. William Lowndes. I am the son of Andrew J. Lowndes, and reside with my father on the York Road. Frequently saw Mr. Goss at the cottage. He told me that he carried on his India rubber investigations in the cellar. He never let me in there. I went into the room above the cellar. I saw in there a little pipe connecting with a can, which he had, and he put a little water in the can, and made fire in the stove, and said he produced steam to cook his rubber with, which was in the cellar underneath. That is all he would tell me about his rubber. End of section 27